Welcome to Hope Renewed, the podcast of PIR Ministries. Thanks for connecting to Hope Renewed, the in-depth podcast about pastoral renewal and restoration. I'm Tom Jameson, and along with co-host Sean Nemechek, we explore the issues and challenges pastors face and help cultivate a renewed hope for healthy ministry lives. On today's podcast, we'll explore what it means to journey with God in the wilderness. Moses, David, Elijah, and Jesus all had significant wilderness experiences in Scripture. Tom, have you ever met God in the wilderness? I think some of the most significant encounters I've had with God have come when I've been in those dry or lonely places. Our guest today is Joe Chambers. He's pastor at Mountain Heights Baptist Church in Buena Vista, Colorado. He's founder of the Sacred Journey Retreats and author of Field Notes on the Jesus Way. Joe loves to spend time with Jesus in his woodshed and out in the wilderness of the Rocky Mountains where he lives. I connected with Joe through some mutual friends at uh, Potter's Inn and Soul Care Institute. Uh, He's a deep soul with a love for pastors. Joe Chambers, welcome to Hope Renewed. I am so honored to be here, guys. Thank you. So, Joe, would you just start by telling us a little bit about your call to ministry and uh, just some brief highlights of your career as a pastor? Well, um, my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. My father was a Baptist preacher. I'm a Baptist preacher, so it's kind of the family business. Um, but I felt called to preach in a little church camp when I was nine years old. I say I was called to preach um, in those days. This is in the 60s. The vocabulary for ministry was rather limited. You were either going to be a pastor, you were going to be a missionary, or you were going to be a, a worship leader, music person, and uh, at least in my tradition. And so I knew I didn't want to go to Africa and be a missionary and I couldn't sing, so that left only one option. I was going to be a a preacher. And so that's the direction that I felt God called. Now, my vocabulary's expanded significantly since that Mm. time, and so I could imagine God, you know, using me in lots of different ways other than just being a preacher, but that's where it started, I think, in about 67, 68, something like that. And um, I became a pastor of my first church when I was 26 years old in 1984. I can't imagine what kind of grace that was bestowed on me by the farmers in Oklahoma who allowed me to be their pastor at 26 (laughs) years old. You know, I mean, what did you guys know at 26 years old? (laughs) Most people, we think we know everything, but we don't know anything. And, uh, but they allowed me to be their pastor and I was their pastor for almost four years. And then I moved to, um, Colorado, our home state. My wife and I are both born and raised in Colorado and actually went to the pastor of the church that she grew up in as a little girl in Lakewood, Colorado. And I pastored there for 13 years and then moved to the Pacific Northwest in 1999 and was out of ministry for seven years. And then uh, the Lord graciously allowed me to engage in ministry again in an official way in 19 or 2007 as an executive pastor of a church plant in the north end of Seattle. And then about 18 months after I got that position, the pastor left and they asked me to be their pastor. And I pastored there till 2015. And then in 2015, that church merged with another church plant. And that meant 
that I didn't have a position. And so I came back to Colorado and I pastor a beautiful little church here in the mountains of Colorado at the headwaters of the Arkansas River. I see this, this uh, wonderful trajectory of uh, God's call, your response. And from 40,000 feet, it looks very smooth and very uh, clear. <laughs> Has it always been that way? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I lie about other stuff too. Um, yeah, you know, actually, it was pretty smooth until it wasn't. Um, mm. I, I spent the first, you know, two decades of my ministry focusing on really two things. Um, I focused on being a good preacher. In my denomination, education is important, but it's secondary to the ability to preach. If you can be a good preacher, then you can write your own ticket career-wise. So I focused really hard on being a good preacher and being a good leader. And so I read all the books. I went to all the conferences and I implemented them in my church. And in my first church, the first Sunday, my wife and I went there, there were 27 people in Sunday school. And when we left, there was 130. Hmm. And my second church, similar situation, just seems like I got this, you know, I, I can preach and I can lead and I can implement all of the, the growth principles and seemed like it worked really well. But what I was not doing, and um, this is an important part of my journey, I was working really hard on the externals of my career. Um, and so I was, you know, I was elected to the president of our denomination. I was on the board of trustees at Lifeway. I got to open in prayer at the Southern Baptist Convention in Houston, um, 38,000 people. All of this was just, you know, you know, on an external level, really weighting me down. And I wasn't paying attention to my soul. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say I neglected it. And, and in 1999, that all came crashing down and I had an implosion because there was no, what I would call soul infrastructure. There was nothing on the inside holding up the weight that I had created on the outside in terms of success and talent and values and giftings and opportunities. And so that collapse occurred in the fall of 1999. And when it, when it collapsed, it, it was devastating mm -hmm. and completely undid, you know, the career that I had built and, you know, my marriage and my, my family, uh, my church, just friendships, all of that just really, really went into a tailspin and uh, has never been the same since. Hmm. But I, I just, I say all that to say that it, it is significant because without that deconstruction of the externals, I would have never found my way inside to build a soul infrastructure that could sustain me for the, the rest of my life, spiritually wow. speaking. So it, it seems like you're saying that in, in the midst of that deconstruction of that collapse, God was still gracious. God was still purposing. There's so many instances of seeing God. Now in the moment, in the moment it all happens, it's hard to see him. But as I look back, I can see God's divine fingerprints all over what, what he was doing in my life. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a story about how this all started. I had gone hunting in the fall of 1999, and 
uh, my dad and I like to hunt together. We like to backpack together. He's, he's just 20 years older than me. So we, we are kind of grew up together in lots of ways. Hmm. And, um, but backpacking, mountain climbing, hunting, all of that is something my father and I really enjoy doing to this day, actually. And, um, in 99, we were elk hunting along the continental divide in Colorado here. And, and, um, we had both decided that we were going to come out on a Saturday afternoon and go back home to our respective churches. He was pastoring in Summit County, Colorado, and I was pastoring in Lakewood. And so we both came out. And when I went back to Lakewood, I found out that my marital unfaithfulness had been discovered and uh, um, an intervention had been hastily organized. And um, I, I just was, I was just devastated. So my wife took our three sons and moved in with her, her parents, rightfully so. And um, I typed out an email and resigned my church and then was alone in the house at 41 years old and had no idea what to do next. So I, re I packed up my, my stuff and went back up to my camp. Didn't tell anybody where I was going. I got some more food and I went up to the camp that my dad and I had um, established, but I knew that I could be found at that camp. And I was so filled with toxic shame that I did not want to be found and mm. wasn't thinking super clearly. So I packed up my tent and all my um, camp and went up higher into the mountains. And uh, I had no idea what I was going to do. I just was not going to see people, you know. And so up, it was up there, though, that when I was in some really deep snow and had my tent set up and I was just so devastated by what I had done that I began to wonder how am I going to care for my family and how am I going to stop the pain of shame? The gun was sitting right there and I thought, well, you know, I could have a, quote, hunting accident and my life insurance would take care of my family at least for a while and I would be out of pain and um, I don't know you know something about that just sounded very narcissistic it was more about me getting out of my pain and pain management than it was anything to do with helping the situation and so in a moment of some sort of clarity I threw all the bullets of my gun out into the snow and packed a light pack and went up to the high ridge and cell phones were brand new. And I just, you know, I checked my cell phone messages and I had a bunch of them, 10 or so. And not all of them were, in fact, none of them were happy. None of them. They were all angry church folks and friends. And my wife was concerned about me, um, mad, but concerned. But there was one, there was one message on the phone that, that really shook me. I pushed the receiver, you know, and I could hear the wind blowing in the receiver and I could hear the person on the other phone was out of breath, like they'd been walking. And then the voice said, and it was my dad's voice. He said, son, I know that if you don't want to be found, I'll never find you. But I just want you to know that I'm up here on these ridges walking and looking for you. And I love you. And then he hung up. Hmm. Well, what do you do? I sat down on that mountain and just wept mm. and um, decided I was going to come out of the hills. And so I came down and he'd met me at the trailhead and we went back to 
my home in Lakewood and had a conversation with my wife and had a plan. And the plan was how to restore and how to get moving in the direction of, of um, spiritual equilibrium. And uh, that included moving to the Pacific Northwest and um, starting all over again. Hmm. Such a powerful story. Yeah. You know, one of the things we do at PIR is, is help pastors who have had moral compromise or failure recover and, if possible, get back into ministry. What was that journey like for you from that, that seven-year period that you described where you were out of ministry and, and coming back? What was, what was it like? Well, um, it was long, um, arduous. A lot of, um, I tell people all the time, the road to restoration is not a straight road. It is a, a winding road and there was failure and setbacks and all kinds of things. But I will tell you this, and, and I, this, is, this is just kind of the reality. In 1999, when I looked around for help, I couldn't find help. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know anyone that had kind of been through what I went through that came out on the other side whole. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that was a, that was a very painful realization. That doesn't mean it wasn't there, but I couldn't find it. And if I can't find it, it might as well not be there. Right. right. And so I'm the little church that took us in, in the Northwest really allowed us to heal. And um, they didn't put any pressure on us. Um, we were both unemployed. Um, we lived in the parsonage next door to the house, I mean, to the church. And so because they took us in and they paid for an intensive, a marital, in, I mean, a, 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 a psychological intensive for me with New Life Clinic down in Southern California for two mm-hmm. weeks. And then they paid for my wife and I's marital counseling for a year and a half to two years at I think wow. it's around two years. They let us live in the parsonage next door to the church for free. They gave me my first job out of ministry, which was to tear down a condemned house next door to that one for $10 an hour. And, um, you know, that actually became quite a metaphor of my life. I was mm-hmm. living in the middle of a metaphor of a condemned life. And here I am. <laughs> deconstructing a house that had been condemned. Um, um, a lady had lived in there for 48 years and had about 18 cats. And so <laughs> it was quite, a. it was, I mean, every day I would go over there and just, Oh my gosh, how, how did I get here? Kind of scenario. Mm. But it was through the, the patient and gracious love of a congregation that didn't put any pressure on me that just, it's almost like they had set a table and a beautiful meal and then just pulled out a chair to my family and said, would you like to, would you like to eat here? We'd love to have you. That's all they did. Mm-hmm. And, um, that grace coupled with some, some and a grace from my wife and the grace from the Lord and the church family caused something to arouse inside of both my wife and I to, to, to rebuild our marriage. It, it took a long time. Um, I think she, my wife, this all kind of came to light in September of 99. And, and she, <laughs> she forgave me on February 14th of 2000. Hmm. That meant she put her wedding ring back on and she said she forgave me, but she's had to forgive me 
a thousand times mm-hmm. since then, every time she thinks about it. <laughs> so <laughs> I know process, that that was yeah. a, that was a decision followed by a process mm-hmm. and uh, I'm grateful for it. Um, she told me this just about two years ago. She said there was the first five years after all of that, you probably said to me a thousand, I mean, a 10 times a day, I'm sorry. You would just whisper it. You would just mouth it to me while we were watching television. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And uh, that see, I, I didn't mean to do that. That was just something I did. And she said, that told me a lot about your heart. So, mm. but along the way there, guys, you know, I was trying to figure out, uh, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to be a guide for others because I didn't see a good system. I didn't see a good guide, but I want to give you an ironic source for me. Um, I picked up a book by Beth Moore on mm-hmm. David and I said, let's see what Beth Moore, and I'd heard about her for years. I, I, I picked up her book and I went to the chapter on David and Bathsheba. And she had the most gracious things to say mm. about David and, and how David came back from that and how David was restored. And I found hope right there you know, mm. through the writings of Beth Moore. As you were walking through this wilderness and, and sensing that deconstructing yet repurposing work of God going on in, in your life, I guess two parts to this question. What, what did you need to put to death or what needed to be put to death in you in order for that to bear fruit? And um, how did you really um, sense that, that God was purposely leading to a place? Well, I'm not sure that I put anything to death. I think God was killing me. Mm-hmm. I just think he was, he was killing my ego. He was killing my false self. He was, um, Elizabeth Elliot is one of my heroes. And, and, and she talks about when the shepherd tries to kill you, she was in Wales and she saw some, some shepherds, um, taking care of the sheep and they put them in a, in a vat to, um, filled with insecticide, you know, to, to keep them from getting insects and infections and all that. And when they did that, they had a long stick with a fork on the end of it, and they would put it around their neck and they would completely immerse the sheep in this, this insecticide uh, bath. And the sheep, she said, must've thought the shepherd's trying to kill me. She said, I know how that feels <laughs> when you feel like the shepherd's trying to kill you. He's not but it feels that way. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt like to me in 99 and 2000 to into 2001, that almost everything I did, it felt like God was trying to kill me. I don't mean that literally. I mean that in a, in a soul way. Um, one of the, one of the s- touchstones for me was in the, in the house that I was telling you about the cat lady's house. I had dismantled the walls on the outside and took the siding off and the front porch off and, most of the load-bearing walls were still intact, and I'd taken the non-load-bearing walls out and put it in the trunk to take to the dump. And the only thing that was left was to to deal with the bathroom. And so I went in there and took the sink out, and then I took the um, I looked at the toilet and the tub, and the tub was one of those cast iron tubs that looked really heavy. And so I thought, well, I'll just maybe get help with that, but I can handle this toilet. And so I took the top of the tank off. That happened pretty easily. And the only thing that was left was the bowl. So I unbolted it from the floor and I jiggled it and it wouldn't move. And I jiggled it some more and it wouldn't move. And I'm getting very frustrated with this toilet. 
And finally, after all the pushing and pulling I could do, I, I wrapped my arms all the way around the toilet bowl where my head was literally inside the bowl. And I had this, I had this thought about how many times the cat lady had sat right here. And, and, I, and I just got so disgusted with the image that I fell back against the bathtub and I just started to weep. How did I get here? I'm a long ways away from where I was two months ago. And I felt like God told me, and he didn't speak out loud, but I felt like God said, uh, we are, I'm with you and we're going to be just fine. And there was a realization there, Tom, that God was with me on the floor of a condemned bathroom from a cat lady's house. Mm. He was with me. And Emmanuel became very real to me. I knew that God was with me. And it wasn't based upon any of the resume I had built in the previous many years. It wasn't based upon the size of my church or how quality my sermons were. I was, I mattered to God because he's God. Mm -hmm. I remember Ron Dunn saying one time that people are always saying, Jesus is all I need. Jesus is all I need. He said, people don't really know that Jesus is all they need until Jesus is all they got. Yeah. And yeah. then, and only then do you know Jesus is all you need. Well, I remember sitting on that floor in that bathroom, feeling like a failure in so many ways. I was even failing at getting the toilet to release from the floor, but Jesus was with me and he's all I need. Yeah. And you know, as you walk through the wilderness, there's always that question of what keeps you going? What keeps you moving? What keeps you hopeful uh, and not consumed by it? And uh, just to have that, that assurance, certainly. A anything else that, that you found that just helped you to keep going through that time? Yeah. Um, well, the love of my wife, she was singularly the thing that kept me moving forward with God. She just was faithful to love me and faithful to not give up on me. And the love of my sons, three sons. I, I shared the story of, with all my three sons at an age-appropriate time. My oldest was 14 when all this happened. My second was 11, and my third was, I don't know, eight. So when they all kind of hit a, you know, an appropriate age of 13 or 14, I took them someplace and told them the story. And they were um, very loving and caring. I remember when I was 16 years, my son, my oldest son was 16 years old. He came up to me one day and he said, dad, I'm so proud of you. I'm proud of how you have rebuilt your marriage with mom. Mm. Wow. So the love of my wife, the love of my sons, the, the love of my, my, my mom and my dad and my brother and my sisters, all of those. Mm. And then some really, really strong laymen and lay, lay I should say lay people, you know, some folks in the church, church members of that little church. You know, there's some little things, guys, that I did, you know, that I don't know where I got, but I journaled, started journaling like I'd never journaled before. Mm -hmm. I started, um, I, I, I would say, dear God. And they, I, and when I kept them, I have a stack of them. They're a stack of those speckled notebooks you get from Walmart for a dollar a piece, you know, and, and I, I would write three pages of just, I would do a word vomit. Can you say that on a podcast? Um, <laughs> we'll find I out. just vomit. I, I just, I just like a stream of consciousness of pain and, 
mm. and, and gross things. And, um, I look back on them now and I just think, Oh my gosh, you were so self-absorbed, but I was in pain. I was in a mm. lot of pain. And so really, if you look at them and now that I know a little bit more, they were laments, they were, mm. there were ways for me to cry out to God about the pain in my heart. And why won't you do anything? And, and, and why would you do anything after what I've done kind of thing? It was self-pity. It was all those things, but it had a place to deposit and um, why I've kept them is beyond me, but I do have them still. Uh, journaling was a big thing. I also started to read differently. <clears throat> I still read the same authors. I was a big Dallas Willard fan and Henry Nowen and um, uh, Richard Foster and Ortberg and those guys, you know, that was huge fans of theirs, but I, I read them prior to all of this so I could quote them in my sermons and sound mm. smarter than I probably was. Mm -hmm. But when I, on the other side of the cat lady's bathroom, I read them for life, you know, for oxygen, for soul sustenance. Wow. And um, I had no sermon to prep. I had no Sunday school class to teach. I was reading the life of the beloved or the wounded healer or the return of the prodigal. I was reading Barbara Brown Taylor. Now I was reading Beth Moore. Now there were so many people I was reading now to just give me a um, sense of hope mm. and, and spiritual strength inside. So, you know, my reading, my reading improved my writing. You know, I started writing all of those things. I didn't have any outlet to, you know, preach or to teach Sunday school or anything. So all of that started to come into focus there. And it's just, I, I have this picture of just being in the wilderness, but, you know, walking with Jesus, just the two of you, as you've said, mm. um, spending that time alone, uh, and yet very much present in his company. When did you begin to sense that God was going to do something with all this pain and, and brokenness mm. that you'd experienced? Well, you know, I wanted him to do something long before he did anything. Mm. I would say maybe three years into, into this where after I told the story in, in a church service one time, and um, I remember my wife and I having lunch after that, and we talked about how we would like to be available to help people who have gone through what we went through. And so we just felt like that was a call on our life and to not waste our sorrows, to not waste the pain. And to, you know, be a guide uh, for others. So we kind of put the word out that we're available to do that. And, you know, um, I expected folks to jump on that like a duck on a bug, but nobody called, nobody came. Um, and it was actually quite discouraging to Lynette and I, but as I look back on it, <laughs> we, there was no way we were ready. Mm -hmm. The wound was still too fresh. It was still mm -hmm. too raw um, we hadn't formulated um, any clear understanding of what went wrong and, and, and had, could not articulate the story very well. So it was all providential. I see that now. But at the time, it was quite frustrating because I felt a call but had no lexicon. I, I had no story. I'm, I had a story, but I had no, it was still too inflamed. There's too much inflammation mm -hmm. around my heart. Mm -hmm. So it was probably in 2007 when I was asked to go back into ministry as an executive pastor, you know, my wife had assumed that it was the ministry 
that had gotten my head so big that I felt I was invincible. And it was, there's a lot of truth to that. So I had to get permission from her to go back into ministry. And um, she was reluctant to do it, actually. But she thought that if you're an executive pastor, you're not on the stage. You don't sound clever. You're not funny. Um, you know, you can't, you can't, that whole, that whole aura of being the guy that is so smart for 30 minutes and so tender and so everything for 30 minutes, is just not going to be a part of who you are. You're just going to be executive pastor. You're going to carry the keys, you know, mm. to the church. And, and so <laughs> she felt that was a safe entry. So that's what happened. And then of course we had no idea that the pastor would leave you know, 18 months later. And then here I am the pastor again. So it kind of backed into it. But once I got into the ministry again and writing sermons again and all of that, this is something that I have found fascinating that I'd, I'd actually like to get your feedback on, if you don't mind. But for many years in those seven years, if you were to come to me and say, um, is there a people group that you don't like very much? I would have said, yeah, there are. They're, pe they're preachers. I don't like pastors. <laughs> And I can spot them. I can see them a mile away. They've got a big gut and, uh, and they're overweight and they're soft and they're slick. And they're always talking about how big their church is. I mean, I could tell a pastor and I just did not like them and I uh, didn't want to be around them. Well, I mean, you don't have to be have a PhD in psychology to figure out what I was really not liking here was Joe. I was projecting mm -hmm. my self-loathing onto a mm -hmm. whole group of people, mm. but I didn't realize that. I mean, the heart is, you know, wicked, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I can't mm -hmm. see my own stuff. So I can remember as a young pastor, I mean, as a pastor, um, I'm getting close to 50 at this point, And I asked God to give me a heart for preachers. I just knew it was wrong for me to not like preachers. I mean, you're supposed to like them. And I, I asked God, give me a heart for pastors. And I pr remember praying that. And he did. Hmm. He gave me a heart to love them. Of course, this is the back door again. Mm -hmm. I, going through the back door, I started loving myself again. <laughs> when I started loving you guys, it, for some reason, splashed back on me. And it was in the process of loving pastors. God granted that if you'd have gone to me in 2006 or seven and said, you need to learn to love yourself. I'd have laughed at you like, well, I'm a piece of, you know what? I, uh, I would never have said that. I'd have thought that, mm -hmm. but in the process of loving pastors, I started loving myself. It's just wow. really bizarre and backwards. And so the more I loved them, the more I loved myself. And then I just fell in love with, I fell in love with them my wife and I fell in love with their, their wives, their spouses. And we just decided that no matter if no one ever comes to us, we're going to go out to them and we're going to say, mm -hmm. Hey, would you like to have a coffee? Would you like to come over to our home for a meal? And in that process of befriending pastors, suddenly now ministry opportunities to come alongside hurting people and hurting pastors and lonely pastors and their wives. My wife, is an incredible hugger and she loves to give pastor's wives hugs. And, and so that started a, a process of, of now I'm collating some of the readings I've done, the Henry Nowens, the Dallas Willards, the Richard Foster's, the CS Lewis's, all these guys, I'm collating all this stuff. 
and I'm looking around. And that's when I read actually at some point in that time, I think it was 2009 or 10, I read uh, a book by Stephen Smith on uh, soul custody. And I reached out to Steve and uh, we became friends and that started me to formally kind of go through the process of getting certified in soul care. I'd been doing it a long time, reading all those, all those uh, authors for years, but it was in that, in that process that I started to kind of focus a little bit more and have something to say. You know, that's, reminds me so much of what Roy Yankee, the head of our ministry tells us again and again. He, he reminds us of the story of Peter when uh, Jesus says to Peter, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed that you would remain. And then after you return, strengthen your brothers. And he, he often tells us, guys, that's all of our stories. We've all had times of failure where we've, we've abandoned Christ in our lives. And then Christ comes back and asks, do you love me? Do you love me? And it's, it's in the feeding of sheep or the caring for the pastors that we learn to be healed ourselves mm-hmm. and Christ restores us. And I think every one of our staff members has a story like that, where we can say it's out of our pain that we find healing as we've helped others heal. Um, and so it, I just, I just love your story, Joe. It's, it's been and so amazing. Tom, don't you think that's, that's consistent with the way oh, we do oh, ministry? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, just the, the power of how God redeems our pain. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we read about this in, in, in Peter and, and uh, you know, as we suffer, uh, God is, is purposing in that, not purposing our suffering, but working his goodwill in, in light of that. And Part of that is our own healing, and part of that is is just the the healing of the nations, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of Christ's love pouring in and through us for that. You know, one time uh, sitting, I think we were watching television, and I I looked over at my wife and I said to Lynette, I said, uh, "Man, I wish I could get in a time machine as a fifty-five-year-old man and go back to that thirty-five-year-old Joe." and and try to talk some sense into him and she never even looked up from whatever she was doing and she said you you're 35 year old you wouldn't listen to the 55 year old you mm-hmm. and i said yeah. what do you mean she said it took exactly what it took to get you to come to your senses and at first i i wanted to push back i wanted to but that was ego in me as a 55 year old man thinking i could out reason i could force of will wave off the 35 year old me but as i look back on it i she's absolutely right there is something about pain that is redemptive and if someone has said pain is the friend nobody wants Hmm. and um and i believe that i would never wish anyone to go through what i went through and what i put so many people through but I can tell you with all confidence that the best thing that ever happened to me was what I went through on that cat lady's bathroom floor. That was the best thing that ever happened to me. Hmm. And, um, I think Spurgeon actually said this. He said, um, blessed is the man who learns to kiss the rod after he's been smitten by it. And I can tell you for sure that 
other than my salvation experience, that experience changed the trajectory of my life for the good. Mm. I wrote in my journal a couple of years ago, I was saved in 1965 by Jesus. I was saved in 1999 by his bride. I was saved again in 1999 by his bride. The church had a huge impact on on saving my, I don't mean salvifically, uh, but saving my soul the second time. Mm -hmm. The church that I was telling you about in Sumner, Washington, no longer exists. When it all came out about what had happened to me, my brother, who was the pastor of that church, he's a year younger than I am, He came to, on a Saturday night, he came to church and had, as they always did, a group of men that would pray for Sunday morning worship services. And so he came and and my wife had just told him the story and he was devastated. And I had preached there just a few months before. And he said, my brother's in trouble. My brother's in trouble. And he was just crying and don't know what to do. And the men said, well, let's bring the family up here. And so how can we do that? You know, well, there's a parsonage next door that they had turned into Sunday school space. They said, we could put that back as a house. We could, we could take those walls down and make that a house again. Well, how are we going to pay for his move and his counseling? And, and they were going through a building program. Actually, they were actually raising money to tear down that cat lady's house. (laughs) And there was a thermometer at the front of the church, you know, those fundraising thermometers. And one of the men pointed to that and said, well, there's money right there. And so there was about $10,000 in that. And so they just decided right then and there, they would use that money to move my family out, to pay for my counseling down in LA, to take care of us. And they, they loved us back to life. And eventually they asked me to be an elder and several years later and and then the church just disappeared. And um, if there's ever been a kenosis of a church, if there's ever been a Philippians 2, 5 through 11, mm-hmm. it's Christ Church of Sumner who emptied their self so that my family could survive. So when, when I hear people, you know, kind of get upset at the church, I challenge them. In fact, I'll, I'll even get a little frustrated and say, you know what? Maybe we should just step out in the church parking lot and have a fight. You know, I'll just fight you in the church parking lot because the church, while she's got a lot of problems, she also kept my family together. It's such a beautiful picture of grace manifest. I mean, Mm. you see that in that church, you see that in your wife and your Mm -hmm. boys. I know in, in my experience, that was the work God was doing. Uh, I had preached on grace and preached on grace and preached on grace. I didn't know it until I saw it through my wife, my children, through mm-hmm. the church. And, you know, we, we are very convinced of that uh, with the work that PIR does uh, in set, establishing refuge churches as places of grace where a pastor and family can find the exact kind of healing um, that you're speaking. And it's, it's unique to every situation mm-hmm. and every pastor and, you know, you don't have to empty your building fund just to do that. But uh, it, Lord, it, no, oh, I can't do but, that. But you need to have the. I don't heart know. I don't love any do pastor that. that much to do that. <laughs> I'm kidding. But to to have the heart to say, Lord, whatever it takes, yeah. to to be an exhibition of your grace, we'll do it. Yeah, Joe, I find that uh, as we try to reach out to pastors who are are in these places of deep pain 
many of them hide. You know, it's, it's the shame of the experience that they're going through. And when we reach out to them, it, first, it can be hard to find them uh, because they're, they're so good at hiding their pain and keeping that from everybody around them. But even then, it's hard to get them to, to open up and embrace, you know, the healing space that we offer. What do you do in connecting with pastors to help them come out of hiding? Well, nothing helps um, a frightened soul come out of hiding than to hear the story of a soul that came out of hiding. Mm -hmm. I tell my story. Mm -hmm. I tell them what happened. And there's something about that telling that gives them some permission to test the waters. Um, I've had people tell me, men tell me about their addiction to pornography the pastor every, you know, preach every Sunday. I've had them tell me about their same sex attraction issues. Um, now I have to decide what I'm going to do with all this information, but I, you know, I want to be that kind of person that would be trustworthy enough that they would feel comfortable sharing that with, but there's nothing that is, um, that signals a safe place than someone to tell their story in the raw. So that's what I do. I almost always, almost always say, if we're going to be friends, there's something you need to know about me. Mm. And so I tell it. I joke a lot of times and say, you know, I don't have, I never went to seminary. I don't have an advanced degree, but I have a PhD in repentance. Mm -hmm. And so I talk about it. That usually, Sean, is what, what draws, maybe not right then, maybe not in that coffee or that lunch, but at some point they'll share with me something they're struggling with. And I share sometimes the current struggles I'm going through um, that makes it real. So that's the best, that's the best thing I've done. I've ever discovered. I can't make them share what they don't want to share. I'm also want to pay close, close attention to their spouse. I've told, in fact, I told a man this week that, you know, my wife is my canary and he didn't know what that meant. And it's a, it's a metaphor, you know, I don't, you guys may know what that metaphor might mean, but for a lot of folks, you know, back in the days in coal mines where, you know, they didn't have the technology they have now. And so they would take, coal miners would take canaries in cages down into the coal mines and the toxic gases, the monoxide, carbon monoxide and different gases are not, you can't smell them. So um, the, the, the idea was as long as a canary is singing, it's safe. But if the canary stops singing, you better get out. And so I've used that analogy to say my wife's my canary. When she's singing, when she's okay in her soul, then we're okay and, and the ministry's okay. But if she stops singing, I need to pay attention to the toxic environment that I'm in. And, um, and so my wife and I pay close attention to spouses, wives, I mean, uh, pastors, wives, or, or, or spouses, because I think they are a good indication of the health of a pastor. So what would you say to, on the other side of that, to that pastor who is struggling about the value of sharing their story with someone else? Well, you know, just from a practical standpoint, the more often you tell your story, the more can authority you have over it it ceases to have authority over you it is something that i can tell it is not just something that's bookmarked my life 
Um, so there's an objective, uh, an objectification of the story that gives me some, some sense of healing, uh, of being able to tell it. So for a pastor, I'll tell you, I would be very careful about sharing my story. Um, if I were him or her, you know, over years, I have learned when it's safe to share it and when it's not, this is a discernment thing. I also have to check my own heart and when am I telling the story for some sort of ego splashback where people just kind of ooh and awe at my story and I feel good about that. I mean, that can get twisted and messed up mm. and, and dark. So I'm, I'm, I'm still learning that and not trying to um, siphon off of the telling of my story of restoration as some sort of dark thing. So learning to tell it in a way that is honoring to God in honoring to the grace that was given to me by my wife and my family and others. Um, but I, as far as how to help another pastor, I would encourage them to tell someone that has a dark story themselves. And, and you can trust. I, I don't hardly ever share my story with someone who, who tells me other people's stories. I remember one time I was having a conversation with a pastor friend and, and uh, he kept talking kind of, ugly and we started talking ugly about a mutual pastor friend then when i was with that other mutual pastor friend we kind of talked ugly about this same this other pastor and i went wait a minute when they're together they're talking ugly about me <laughs> and it just occurred to me i'm just i'm kind of slow sometimes <laughs> that you know that gossips and and people that share stories out of school um are not safe people um, so that's one of the things I'm, I'm looking to see if someone's safe enough to hear my story. You know, mine's a public enough, you know, I mean, it's on this podcast now and it's, I've written about it and it's, you know, lots of places, the church that I pastor have heard my story and I've heard my wife's story of forgiveness. So I'm not as cautious about telling it. Um, I'm so far it's 20 something years away, but if I were a pastor, Sean, I think that had a story, I would be careful about who I shared it with, but I would share it with somebody. There is no healing without some revealing. You know, there's got to mm. be a sharing of our stories to someone. Someone needs to know the darkest part. That's powerful. As we uh, uh, kind of come to the end of our conversation here today, I, I'm really impacted with the hope that's just infused in, in all that you've shared. Uh, as a kind of a constant theme. We, we, we like in, to invite our guests to, to just kind of speak to our listeners for a second. What, what word of hope would you offer to pastors right now? Well, Jesus is sweeter than anything you could ever imagine. Come and taste and see that he is good. I've never been let down by Jesus. I've never regretted following him. I have simplified my ministry significantly. I'm going to be 63 years old in a couple of weeks. And right now, my ministry consists of prayer and immersing myself in God's Word. And uh, I find simplifying my ministry to be the most hopeful thing and keep putting one foot in front of the other. It sounds a little bit cliche, but I just keep walking with Jesus. That's so good. Joe, if uh, people wanted to connect with you online, where can they find you? Uh, I have a blog that I write. I don't know the name of it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know the URL. <laughs> I know the name of it. It's Field Notes on the Jesus Way. It's kind of based on my, my book is based on some of the blog articles that I've written. Also, I, I didn't mention this, but I'm also 
affiliated with Crossroads Counseling of Buena Vista. And uh, I do pastoral counseling there. So uh, one of the things that um, I have been blessed in the last, since COVID-19 actually, is Pete Kuyper, who is the founder of, one of the founders of Crossroads Counseling, asked me to come and and serve on staff with him um, adjunctly to uh, do ministry intensives. And so he will, a pastor or a couple will come and spend a week to two weeks with Pete kind of like what happened to me in, at the New Life Clinic, you know, 21 years ago. But he will work with them on their clinical issues, and then I'll work with them on their soul care issues. Mm-hmm. And so we have a good tandem relationship there, but it's Crossroads Christian Counseling of the Rockies in Buena Vista. So I'm sorry, I don't know my own website. but We'll, we'll, we'll hunt it down. <laughs> we'll find it. <laughs> but in, in the, the show, show notes, notes guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be in there. Yeah. yeah, and you're also on Twitter. People are. That's right. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Don't judge me on Twitter, though. I, that's, <laughs> I, I vent a lot on Twitter, Sean. You know that. So <laughs> I think sometimes that's what it's there for. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Joe, thank you so much for yeah. coming on and sharing honored. just your story and your heart for pastors. We really are honored to have you with really us. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Blessings. Thank you for listening to Hope Renewed. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends. And as always, you can rate and review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. This really helps us spread the word about Hope Renewed to more pastors. If you are walking through a wilderness in life or ministry right now, please know that you don't have to walk alone. It's our prayer that you will find hope in Christ to carry you through. PIR Ministries partners with God and the church in the work of pastoral renewal and restoration to cultivate new hope for healthy ministry lives. You can learn more about us at our webpage, pirministries.org, or email us at info at pirministries.org. Thanks for joining us for Hope Renewed, and remember, the hope Christ offers will never put us to shame.